give you thanks for that victory that he won on the cross, that he has saved us for our greatest need, to be rescued from our sins. We thank you for such wondrous love that you would give your very Son for our rescue, our salvation. We thank you that you have sent to us your Holy Spirit, that your Spirit is the one who has regenerated us, who has Open our ears to hear the gospel, that we might believe it, that we might repent of our sins and turn to Jesus Christ. We thank you that even now your spirit indwells us, all the more causes us to to grow in our sanctification, to guide us in our walk with our Lord Jesus as we walk along that journey till we come before your presence we thank you, our God, that that is our, our hope. Rest in the work of Christ. Rest in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Rest in your electing us and securing for us our inheritance of eternal life. It is in that confidence that we come before your throne. We confess before you our sins. For many times that even as we possess these riches, yet we have doubted that we have desired even uh, something that we think is more secure or something that is more pleasurable, and we have given way to sin. We confess that before you and repent of such uh, sinful desires. We confess our doubts before you that we have not trusted you that we have depended more upon our own abilities or other idols, and we repent of such wayward confidence. We confess before you, we have not lived up to the commands that you have given to us to, to love you with all of our strength and heart and mind and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And there has been that good that was before us that we could have done and we failed to do it. And we repent of those ways. Praying all the more for your Holy Spirit to work within us a life of obedience to you. We pray, Father, for this world in which you have placed us. We thank you for many of its beauties that you have granted to us, yet there is much ugliness, there's much violence, much idolatry, much enmity. We pray for that work of your common grace by your spirit to bring a measure of peace in a world that is so troubled. Our Father, we thank you as we think of the Veterans Day for those who have served and continue to serve in our military forces because there is not peace in this world. We thank you for their dedication for their bravery, for their willingness to even sacrifice their very lives to bring peace in this world. So we pray for them. We pray particularly for those who do not know you. And they are in harm's way. And we pray all the more for them uh, to hear the gospel and by your Holy Spirit to believe it and to repent, to know their Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters in areas of this world in which they are persecuted 
precisely because they are obedient to you. We pray for your watch over them, keeping them safe, but above all, to answer their own prayers, which is to keep them faithful before Jesus Christ as a witness uh, to this world. We pray for the, the needs of our people. We pray for Al LaCrosse, who will be having knee surgery uh, this week, and pray for that uh, to go well and for good recovery. We thank you for the successful procedure for Scott Patterson of uh, receiving a speaking uh, device and pray over the coming days and, and weeks as they receive therapy for um, uh, all the more to be able to, to speak and to speak well and to testify to your goodness. And then, our Father, we grieve with our, with our sister Norma Graham. His husband, Ray, uh, died yesterday. And we trust that he has entered into your presence We pray for Norma, for your comfort of her, for uh, your peace to be with her, and for her daughter, Bevan, and her son, John, and for their spouses. We pray for them in the coming days and weeks, that you may, all the more that she may know your comfort and to know your love. And our Father, we pray for ourselves here in this sanctuary. And you know our needs. You know things that are troubling us. You know things that will be happening soon that we do not know. So all the more we pray for you to feed us, feed us with your word. By your Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear. And so that all the more that we may live for our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, for our scripture reading, if you will uh, turn with me to Jonah. Chapter 3, we're looking at verses 1 through 9. If you're using the, uh, the Bibles uh, underneath the chairs, you'll find it on page 655. Uh, Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Just a reminder that if you're reading from the NIV, don't get too caught off guard. I'm reading from another version, the English Standard Version. Let us hear the word of God. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The people of Nineveh believed God. He called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. 
Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Let us pray. Father, again, as we open your word before our eyes, we pray that you would open our minds to understand it, that by your Holy Spirit you will convict us as we need conviction, comfort us as we need comfort, all that you determine by your Spirit that we need this morning. Christ's name we pray. Amen. I must say, before I begin, I have... um, been described as many things I've never been described as happening, and my daughters will be greatly surprised to hear that attributed uh, to me, but thank you. Thank you, Rice. You know, I can remember a moment, the moment, when I learned one of the most significant spiritual lessons that has really just changed the way that I understood God, understood my faith. I was sitting um, on the pulpit platform at a 10th Presbyterian Church. I always sat on the, the right chair, and uh, uh, Dr. James Boyce was preaching. And he asked the question, do you know what God wants? And that, that caught my attention. Not that I ever let my attention wander when I'm listening to a sermon. But I, I did want to know that. Dr. Boyce said, he wants to be believed. And like I said, that, that, that changed everything for me. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in the, um, the sermon. But it, I could have learned that lesson much earlier if I simply paid attention to the response of the Ninevites to Jonah's preaching. So let's go back to our text. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And when I'm studying about this and looking at some of the commentators, they, they all seem to make a great point here about the Lord giving Jonah a second chance, and wasn't that great? And I, I suppose it could be considered gracious of God to, to give his servant another opportunity to serve, but it seems to me that really the Lord was simply throwing Jonah back into the original assignment that he'd given him in the first place. As we've already learned, no one can flee the presence of the Lord and no servant can forsake the assignment that he has been given. God's will will be done. And so God is saying, Jonah, get back to it. So, verses 3 and 4, Jonah does. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, let's recall for a moment Jonah's original assignment. It's uh, back there in chapter 1, in verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, Further evil has come up before me. So Jonah's message was a simple one. It was one of doom. The evil of the city had come up before God. And God, of course, was not ignorant of Nineveh before. 
but rather what was happening is the, the sin had become so great, it had now become a time in which God's judgment was called for. So Jonah proclaims his very simple message, the imminent overthrow of Nineveh, yet 40 days. And then the most extraordinary thing happens. Verse 5, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The Ninevites actually believed Jonah. Now, you know, just try to understand a little bit. Jonah's probably gone into some marketplace area where the people would have been crowded about. And uh, he's, a, uh, he's a foreigner. And he's probably dressed like many Hebrew prophets. He has the appearance of a, of a poor, eccentric man. And he's crying out, the end is near. And for whatever reason... These cosmopolitans actually stop what they're doing, they listen to him, and they are cut to the quick. Now, I suppose a comparison for us would be that of an eccentric-looking man. He's standing on a crate in Times Square. He's got his bullhorn preaching that, that the God's about to send down his judgment on this wicked city. And then all the shoppers, the storekeepers, the streetwise walkers, everybody actually just stop and they gather around him and they begin to wail. They, they, they are feeling the guilt. It is no less than a miracle as difficult to believe, oh, I don't know, as a man being swallowed by a fish and living through that. I tell you, in minutes, a video would have been made from somebody's camera, and it certainly would have gone viral on YouTube. But let's back up for a second here. The wording is not that the Ninevites believed Jonah, was it? It's that they believed God. Now understand what's happening here. The ancients were not atheists. They were polytheists. They believed in many gods. They believed that there were seers and and oracles who spoke for gods. And here they are accepting Jonah as a prophet who is the mouthpiece of God. They believed God, that he would carry out his judgment. They then engage in a formal act of mourning. They call for a fast. They put on sackcloth, the the wearing of coarse material. Now, perhaps it's done spontaneously, but I suspect that the next verses give us more of the details of how this was carried out. Look with me, beginning in verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Okay, so let's get this picture. Everyone in a city engages in fasting, and they're wearing the sackcloth. The king sits in ashes. 
which probably means that everyone else did the same. Again, these are formal acts of mourning and of contrition. The people didn't just suddenly lose their appetite. They are practicing fasting to express their grief. They didn't suddenly not like their clothing anymore. They're wearing this coarse clothing to display a a repentance uh, inside of them. It's the same with sitting in or covering oneself with ashes. Now, there are notable participants in these acts. The first one is the king. Remember, this is the mighty ruler of the Assyrian Empire, and he humbles himself. Before his subjects, he subjects himself before the God of Jonah. And in the same way that the fear of God entered into the mariners, remember when the storm came and and the storm ceased, so the fear of God seems to have entered into the, the king of Nineveh. And he exercises his due authority to command the same response of all the city, which then leads to the, to the really peculiar participants, the cattle and the sheep. So the animals also are, have to fast, and sackcloth is placed over them. Now, there are a handful at best of references to animals kind of being included in mourning rituals. But there is nothing like this that we we know of in in the ancient world. But when you think about it, it's not that unreasonable of an idea. For one thing, it enforces the, the display of mourning. It's indicating that daily life is not to go on simply as it always does. The outward display of all living things in the city was to be that of mourning, of of grieving. Now, another thing here is that it's also acknowledging that all things in the city are under this judgment. And the city, if the city is going to be destroyed, the animals are going to be included in that as well. And so it's a statement that whoever or whatever is in the city will be under that same sentence of doom. So, so far we have spoken of a a display of mourning and, and grieving. But the king intended for this to display repentance as well. He goes on to say in verse 8, Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And that phrase, let him turn, or in NIV, let him give up, that is translating the Hebrew word for repent. So to repent, by definition, is to turn away from sin. It's to give it up, but for primarily turn away from it, which in this case includes their violent sins. Now the hope here is that God will see a change of heart, at least he'll see a change of behavior, and then who knows, maybe he will, you know, not carry out his intentions. I mean, Jonah did say it would be 40 days before that judgment would come, and, and why, why do you give 40 days? 
unless gives opportunity for repentance. So we stop there. And we'll have to wait till next week for the story to be continued. Meanwhile, what does this pagan city and this pagan king have to teach us? Well, the first lesson is the one I've already spoken of at the very beginning. One must believe God. The first step of any real change is to believe God, to believe what he says. Indeed, I would even say it is the critical step to getting everything else right about our faith and about getting our lives in order. I mean, we commonly speak of believing in God. Believe in God, we urge others. When we counsel fellow believers, or even ourselves, we might ask, well, don't you believe in God? Don't you believe in Jesus? But just take out that preposition and ask the same questions. Don't you, don't you believe God? Don't you believe Jesus? You see the difference there? Can you feel the difference? In particular, can you see how personal it now makes matters of faith and of religion? I'll give you an example. To reject the gospel is to reject God himself. Now, the unbeliever might protest that he, he would believe the gospel if, if there were enough evidence that the gospel was true. And he might contend that, you know, there's just not enough evidence for God's existence and that he cannot believe in something that cannot be broken or cannot be proven. Well, God begs to differ. According to God, he has spoken clearly in his word, which is referred to as special revelation. And he has given plenty of evidence through what is called natural revelation. So according to God, unbelievers do not believe in him because they will not believe him. And they will not believe because of pride. And they can object all they want that God does, but God does not believe them. And he holds them accountable for not believing him. But we ourselves also need to believe our God. Over the many years that I've been a pastor, Christians have come to me for counsel and often worried about their salvation. And they wonder, how, how could I be sure of my salvation given the sins or the sin that I just recently committed or the sins I keep committing? How can I be a Christian if I have done whatever they tell me? How can I know that God still accepts me or will accept me given that I keep doing whatever? Now, I take these concerns seriously. and We, we, we look into these things because our sins ought to trouble us and we ought to examine ourselves. But if I determine after that that their faith is real and that they truly are under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, then I ask my own questions. Do you not believe God? Do you not believe that he will fulfill his promises? Are you saying, are you saying God is too weak? You're too tough for him? Are you saying 
he is a liar? And that typically has an impact. Because then we understand that however humble it may seem to question our salvation, gee, you know, I can never be sure because of looking at myself. If you have indeed called upon Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you are ascribing untruthfulness to the very person whom you acknowledge as Lord. Now, it is well to mourn over your sin, but it is dishonorable to then doubt the truth and the promises of your Lord to have saved you. Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. John 6:37. Are we going to have the audacity to contradict him? Now it also works the other way. One can treat the promises of God frivolously. We can ignore his words of warning. And Jesus addressed this. In Matthew 7:21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now such persons never come to me for counsel worried about their salvation. But some have come to me about their sins, and I've had to to ask them the same questions. Do you not believe God? Do you choose what you will believe and what you will discount? Do you think God will be understanding and forgiving of such an attitude in which you just sin freely and you just in kind of a glib way give thanks that God's going to forgive you? So whoever we are, Whatever the circumstance, we must all ask ourselves the question whether or not we will believe God. Now, the king of Nineveh gives us a lesson here, and he teaches us what true repentance looks like. You know, some confuse repentance with just just feeling sorry. Now, to feel sorry for sin, to mourn one's you know, perceived disfavor with God, that's part of repentance. It's an essential ingredient. How many of us husbands, I have been told, not that I've experienced this myself, but have learned the hard lesson of saying to our wives, we're sorry, but only to learn that that's one small step for man. That our wives want to know if we really are sorry or if we're merely trying to get them to stop being upset with us. God wants more than show. He wants heartfelt sorrow for sin. Well, that is what the Ninevites sincerely were trying to show. They believed, they believed God, that he was going to punish them for their sins. So they were cut to the quick, and they immediately began to outwardly show their sorrow for their sin most especially their sorrow for the judgment that was about to fall on them. But feeling sorry is not enough. There needs to be repentance. Repentance uh, for sin, again, by definition means turning away from it. And so that is why the king exhorted his people to turn from their wicked ways, turn from their violent sins. And this is the repentance that must be proclaimed today. 
and taught to unbelievers. Spiritual conversion does not rest with some kind of, you know, an intellectual consent. Okay, I I think I now finally believe this. You know, I believe that God exists. Yes, I, I believe that Jesus died for sins. I mean, there are many who sit in churches today because they have come to believe that Christianity is a good religion to follow. You know, and they, they've sown their wild oats. It's now time to settle down with a family, uh, and it's good to receive moral teaching and, and so on. But they may, you know, they, maybe you can get them even to own up that they're, they're not perfect. And yes, they do need forgiveness to a measure. But they're not convicted. They're not convicted of being sinners who are liable to a just condemnation of a holy God. They might feel bad at times that they're not as good as they should be. Again, they might appreciate moral instruction, but they do not believe, God, that their souls are in peril. It is repentance that needs to be proclaimed, not that God loves them. It is judgment, they need to be told, that awaits them. Not, look, your, your life could be more fulfilled type of message. They need to believe God. And then they need to repent of their sins. And then they need to repent of their sins by turning away from that path of unrighteousness and following the Lord Jesus Christ. They repent. They need to repent by turning away from their self Efforts, turning toward the work of Jesus Christ alone. They need to repent of their actions and exercise faith in the actions of Jesus Christ alone. That is true repentance. And again, we believers need to do the same. Now, we, we have repented of our sins. We have, we have turned away from them. We have professed faith in, in Jesus, and he has saved us. We know we're in the family. We have gained our inheritance of eternal life. We, we rest. We believe in those promises of God. We believe God to keep his word. Nevertheless, as we know, we continually fall back in our old ways. We fear the world. And then we lose trust or confidence in God to protect us. We envy the world. And we take on the world's ways instead of seeking first the kingdom of God. We resent others who mistreat us or who gloat over us instead of finding our peace in God's acceptance. There are times that we have outright transgressed the clear laws of God, maybe out of greed, out of lust, out of pride, forgetting the riches that we have in Christ. Or we have become self-righteous and we we trust in the law and our own righteousness to earn our salvation instead of trusting solely in the work of Christ. We might depend on good activities such as church attendance or or following the Ten Commandments or, or doing good works to win God's favor. We need to repent of these things, of all of these forms of sins and sinful attitudes. We need to continually hear the gospel and then repent of our transgressions and of our, of our self-righteousness. We need to repent 
Not because God's going to forget his promises and now he's going to condemn us. But we need to repent so that we will reawaken to the truths that he has spoken of in the gospel. We need to repent because without repentance, we sink further into hypocrisy, not realizing that we have turned to trusting in ourselves rather than trusting in the Lord. We need to repent so that we will give our God the glory that is due his name. So we've learned that we need to believe God, we need to repent, and then there's Jesus himself who commented on this very passage. It's in Luke 11, 29 to 32. Let me read, uh, read that passage. When the crowds were increasing, Jesus began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. She came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Something greater than Jonah was before the people right then. That something was the Son of God. Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh as a prophet who was warning them of the judgment of the Lord. Now what Jesus is saying that when the day of judgment arrives for all of us, the Ninevites will point to the people of Israel who had the very Son of God preached to them, and and they will condemn such a generation that would not hear They heard, and they believed a prophet. As wicked as they were, they nevertheless repented. And yet here are the covenant people of God refusing to heed the teaching of the Son of God, the promised anointed one. Now, no doubt, the Jews of Jesus' day will protest. Well, they say, well, you know, we didn't know Jesus was the Son of God, the Messiah. They might argue that, well, That's why we wanted a sign from him, you know, so he could prove his authority from God. But the Ninevites accepted Jonah, a lesser man, on face value. They, pagans as they were, accepted the the preaching of this foreigner as the word of God himself. And here is one who came to his own people, and his people would not accept him. Now, our generation is guilty of the same rejection. Still remember listening to a preacher saying, preach, I don't even know I would use that term, preach, that he could not understand what the cross is about and that it does not matter who we believe Jesus was. And all the while, the congregation is just sitting there and, and smiling approvingly. Well, he and they are but products of skepticism that is encroached into many 
churches that claim to be Christian. I've listened to another preacher who who says he does uphold all the claims of Jesus, and then he reduces Jesus' message of repentance to one of earthly prosperity. Now, in both cases, even unbelievers look at such preachers, look at such churches, and they see the emptiness and the betrayal of the gospel that we are guilty of. You know, there was a doubter even among Jesus' disciples, besides Judas. You know his name. It was Thomas. And as you remember, he refused to believe that his master had risen from the dead. And then when he beholds Jesus, what does he cry out? He cries out, my Lord and my God. Well, it's Jesus' response that's intended for us. Remember what he said? Have you believed, Thomas, because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Believe God. Believe his message. Believe his message that he will judge those who do not repent of their sins. Believe his gospel message that he has sent his son, Jesus Christ, who has paid the penalty for those sins. Believe Jesus. When he says that whoever turns to him will never perish, but will have eternal life. In a world of competing claims and a vast skepticism, believe something that is true. Believe the gospel. And believe someone who does speak the truth. Jesus Christ. We do believe you, our God. Believe your words. Believe our Lord Jesus. All the more by your Holy Spirit. Keep us believing. Keep us obedient. We pray for any who may be even here and have have never truly believed you, truly understood the gospel. By your Spirit, you would give them the ears to hear, the, the mind to understand, the heart to believe. We pray these things in our Lord's name. Amen.